that, uh, of course, Tim Martin has instilled in them uh, related to the, the biblical timeline of the book of Genesis, you know, and of course, they walked me through the timeline of the church, church era. Then they went into reciting the, uh, the, the, the answering questions pertaining to the, uh, the different creeds of the church. And, uh, and so, you know, after that, I got, a, I got my money's worth. Huh? Uh, but I, seriously, I, I am very, very proud of the Cornerstone kids. And I want to thank them for letting Pastor Charlie sit in on their class this morning. And I have a deep appreciation for what takes place. So I can guarantee you, parents, and if you have uh, friends who have young, young children, um, if they come and, and uh, immerse them in the children's CGG, they are not going to be babysat, I promise you. They will be uh, taught strong uh, in the Word of God. I was telling the kids as we were getting ready to finish up the lesson and, and head over here and to pray that I would be uh, preaching from the uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, <clears throat> and, and just explaining to them that, you know, Jesus who has been under attack by his adversaries in the lesson today, in the message today, Jesus is on the offensive. And he is he's going to be leveling some strong attacks against those who were false religious leaders. And I told the kids that in the course of the message today, they would hear Jesus use a, a powerful word, short but powerful, and it's the word woe, W-O-E. And I says, you know, this... This is a word that tells somebody they're about to experience judgment for what they're doing that is wrong in the eyes of God. And so I was looking in one of my Bible dictionaries and the word woe is used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. It's an interjection and an exclamation of grief and denouncement. In other words, it can be used by someone experiencing tremendous grief in, in, in the presence of God. I think about Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah had that wonderful temple vision in, in the temple of God. And, and when he saw the absolute holiness of God and heard the, the seraphim shouting, holy, 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 Isaiah was stricken by the fact, the reality that he was a sinner. When he said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Woe is me. So in a term of, I feel, he's saying, I feel sorry for myself. I'm totally inadequate to be in the presence of God. But then there are times, as we'll see in the scripture today, where Jesus is using woe as a, a strong warning of judgment to those who were hounding him, his, his adversaries. And so as we look at Luke chapter 11, I want us to begin in verse 37. And, and verse 37 kind of sets the stage, verse 37, verse 38, for the teachings of Christ in, in these uh, next verses uh, that you'll see. It says in verse 37, and this, this ties into what we were looking at earlier in chapter 11, where the, the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the ones that were constantly trying to discredit Christ, to, to take him off the scene, to even possibly destroy him, if, the, if at all possible. And, and Jesus, you know, had, had heard them accuse him of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub, Satan. He had heard them taunt him over and over. Why don't you show us a real sign? You know, a celestial sign of something of heaven. And so all of this, and, and right 
there, there isn't a, a an authentic break in the action when you start in verse 37. Because if you look at verse 37, it says, and as he spoke, so he's probably wrapping up what he's been teaching. But it says, as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. That's pretty good. Jesus is attacking the Pharisees, you know, and, and all of a sudden one of them, you know, an anonymous Pharisee says, how about coming over to my house for lunch? This is probably the, the uh, noonday bill. How about coming over to dine with me? And, and, you know, Jesus didn't offer excuses. He didn't say, well, who are you asking me to come to your house? You know, after all the things that you and your party are leveling on me and, and the grief you're causing me. No, but it says that Jesus went went in and sat down with him. Went to, went to lunch with him or dinner, whatever the case was. In verse 38, an interesting observation here by Luke. And it says, and when the Pharisees saw it, he marveled. What, what was he marveling about Jesus coming into the house and sitting down at the table and getting ready to eat? He just invited him, right? Well, it gives us a little bit of a clue. He marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, I don't scrutinize our guests when they come over to our house to eat. Like, I didn't hear you go in the bathroom and wash your hands. Did you use soap? Now, occasionally we're asked our grandchildren that because we know they get out and digging in the dirt and doing all kinds of things. They're telling where those hands have been. So for their own sake, safety, I'll ask if you have, have you washed your hands. But folks, this this is this washing had nothing to do with hygiene. It was it was another ridiculous thought up ritual that the Jewish leaders had had uh, devised to impose on the people. And if you thoroughly carried out this particular ritual, then you were to come into the house and you were going to the wash basin. And you'd have had to have the assistance of somebody else. But the ritual stipulated very carefully that you hold your hands with your fingers pointed up and let the person begin to pour water over your hands, covering them. And the water couldn't drip any further than the wrist. And then after that, then you had to turn your hands upside down. Fingers had to be pointed down. And then again, they would wash over the top of your hands. Nothing to do with hygiene. It was just a symbolic ritual to indicate that they were ceremonially clean, that there were no sins attached to them that would disqualify them on and on and on. And so he notices that Jesus doesn't go through that ritual. And to a Pharisee, that was just flabbergasting. He marveled at that. And he was amazed. It's kind of like when Jesus' disciples were walking through the wheat field or grain field, you know, and they were grinding up heads of grain as they were going, which is customarily permittable. And they were eating. And the Pharisees, they're little spies. I just see them popping up out of the cornfield. Aha! Uh -huh. <laughs> you guys didn't wash your hands. I mean, it, it just lost any relevance to, to uh, common sense. So this Pharisee sees Jesus come in, sit down at the table, and they begin. he begins to eat. And, he, and he's amazed. But he didn't say anything. But he didn't need to say anything because Jesus was reading him like a book. You know that the Lord omniscient, he knew exactly what the Pharisee was thinking, even as the Pharisee is thinking it, because the Lord then used that as a springboard 
to launch in on his attack on his spiritual enemies. And so you'll see, beginning in verse 39, that the Lord, in this stern rebuke that he delivers upon the false leaders of that day, of the people of, of, of God, the, the Jews, he levels a stern rebuke upon them that exposes their misplaced love, their misplaced love. This is a concern to Jesus. The people who were entrusted to lead the people of God had misplaced their love. Their love should have been first and foremost with God. And then if you know the first and the second greatest commandment, then the second is they love their neighbor, other people. But obviously Jesus saw a group of people claiming themselves to be spiritual, you know, giants who were actually spiritual pygmies who were more in love with themselves and their rituals and their empty religion than they were with God. You see, the part of the problem is the Jewish leaders made the mistake of snubbing God's expectations of righteousness as clearly indicated in the law and the teachings of the, the Old Testament. They, they snubbed God's expectations of righteousness in exchange for their own empty legalistic religion. And Jesus saw that and it infuriated him. And so this, this is what Jesus is, he's, he's now speaking to this Pharisee. He's responding, but, but against that backdrop, if you will, because you see, he's accusing them of loving their external appearances and empty facades more than they love God. Look what Jesus said in verse 39, but the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but you, but your inward part is full of greed. Jesus was accusing them of serving from half clean dishes. I don't know about you, but I don't think I would repeatedly visit a restaurant that had a reputation of just washing the outside of the glasses and the outside of the bowls, you know, and just maybe the bottom side of the plate. I just really don't think that would appeal to me. And Jesus says spiritually, that's who you are. You are like unclean dishes, you know. And he says, now in verse 39, the Lord says, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Oh, they love to wear their robes out in public. They love to perform their silly rituals that made them somehow look to be so meticulously religious. Oh, listen, on the outside, they were impressive. But Jesus saw on the inside and he knew they were not authentic. I like how the expanded version given in Matthew's gospel, chapter 23, you might even want to put a mark over there because because Matthew is tracking right along with Luke and giving some details along with that. In Matthew 23, in verse 25, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Jesus calls it like it is. Blind Pharisees, and we talked about that last time. They're spiritually blind. Blind Pharisees, First, cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. 
He says it's ridiculous to exert so much of your time and effort in, in making sure that you look impressive on the outside. When on the inside, spiritually, you're rotten. You're dead. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He goes on to say in verse 27 of Matthew 23. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. I think they got the message Jesus was saying. The Israelite spiritual leaders, the ones entrusted to shepherd the people of God, lived in compartmental lives. They, they lived in their own little religious world. They had no idea who God was, actually. They had no idea what God's expectations were. And they really were out of touch with God, but they were out of touch with God's people. And so we see that. And Jesus, this infuriates the Lord as he is. We'll go back to chapter 11 of Luke. And he says in verse 40, foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? He's talking about God. He says, what do you think? The very one who made you? And as the psalmist says in, in Psalm 139, you, you form my innermost parts. Every part of me, God, you, you made. You know my outside. You know my inside. And he's saying here, what do you think? That God who knows you outside doesn't know you inside? Sure he does. Sure he does. In verse 41, Jesus goes on to say, but, but rather give alms of such things as you have. Then indeed all things are clean to you. Oh, they were careful to give. And we'll see meticulously, very carefully, ridiculously. Strategic and giving their alms and tithes and things like that. But they did it for show. Jesus says, first of all, if you want to really please the Father, then you give alms of what is, what is valuable to you. They were known for being greedy and stingy and, and robbing the people. They were more interested in what they could get out of the people than what they could give to the people. And Jesus says, if you want to take a step in the right direction, then why don't you give alms of such things as what you have. So you see, Jesus is, is setting the stage there for this confrontation. Not only did they love their external appearance and their empty facades, but the Lord saw that they loved public recognition and praise. And everybody likes affirmation. There's nothing wrong with receiving, you know, authentic praise. Want you to do a good job. But then you don't go around begging for it. You don't go around setting the stage and prompting people to boast about you and to, to make over you. And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees obviously were doing in that time. In verse 42, Jesus says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. What is Jesus saying there? I don't know how many of you got in your spices rack. Things like Jesus is talking about mint and rue and all these, but these are typical spices and herbs. And, and, and these ridiculous religious leaders, they, to impress the people, 
they would get out in public and they'd be counting out like, you know, grains of mustard seed or a rue or what mint, you know, I've got 10 leaves of mint. I'm going to give one to God, you know. And they were so, so they did that so that the people would be impressed. And Jesus is calling their hand on this. Jesus says, don't be so obsessed with these fine little details designed just to impress people of how, well, how religious you are. You have been neglecting the weightier things, which is justice and loving God. Give your attention and your energy and priority to those things. And, and Jesus knew that they were neglecting that. Isn't it interesting? The first and the greatest commandment and the second Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. If they are doing those two things, then they are fulfilling the two greatest commandments. Jesus says you're tied up in the minor things that really don't matter. And, and you are neglecting the weightier, more important, eternal things, such as pursuing justice for other people who are, who are being subjected to, to, to injustices. And, and then faithfully loving God. As we read on in verse 43, Jesus continues. And by the way, back in 42, that was the first woe. That's Jesus' first pronouncement of judgment. He says, you will be judged. God sees. In verse 43, we see the second woe. He says, woe to you Pharisees. For you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk on them are not aware of them. Jesus says, another reason that you have to fear the judgment of God that is, is, that is aimed in your direction is because all you do is prance, prance around in society and look for opportunities where people can make over you and brag about you and praise you. Oh, listen, they loved it when they would go into the synagogue, you know, with their robes and, and all of their regalia of religion. And the, and the people in the synagogue would say, oh, oh, brother, so-and-so, you, you, you can't sit out there in the, in the congregation with us commoners. We got a seat up here on the stage for you. And it would be a seat facing the congregation, so that the people would be admiring them. Oh, they loved it. They ate it up. This motivated them. They loved it when they would be at the marketplace. They'd probably wait for a busy day. And they would walk into the marketplace, and everybody else has got their normal everyday work clothes on and going about, and here comes one of the Pharisees or one of the scribes all decked out, you know, and they probably got a big old testament under their arm, and, and, and the people say, oh, Rabbi so-and-so, Pharisee, so and so. Oh, look, it's rabbis. It's so, oh, look, it's, it's Pharisee. So, oh, it's one of our scribes. Everybody, make way, make way. And Jesus saw this was what was driving them. He says, You are like graves that are not seen. I don't know if you've gone to a real ancient graveyard. I mean, oh, oh. Our. Saponi tribe, our people have them. We have a cemetery at the church. In fact, I have lots there myself uh, in the graveyard there. But but there was a graveyard where the church used to be. We call it the old cemetery. But then 
someone discovered a, a, an old, old cemetery where there weren't headstones. There were just rocks propped up. And if you look very carefully, you could see maybe a few letters etched. And so, you know, if a hunter was hunting, you know, I, I try to make it a practice not to walk across people's graves. Not that I'm superstitious or think anybody's going to reach up and grab me by the leg. or No, I, I do it out of respect. And, and so, uh, uh, you know, people hunt up there all around that area. I can imagine hunters walking all in the old, over top of those graves. Had no idea people were buried right beneath their feet. Why would that be a big deal to, to a Jew? Because the law forbade any of God's people for having contact with that which is dead. And the grave was certainly associated with the dead person, the corpse of the person in there. So you you would, that's why they would whitewash, you heard Jesus talking about, whitewash the tombs to make sure that if you were going through a graveyard, and I think the Moravians do that every Easter Friday or whatever in preparation for, you know, the uh, the, the big Easter, Easter sunrise service, those, those gravestones are just sparkling in the morning sun. When they got up there and scrubbed them. But you see, to a Jew, they wanted to make sure that you marked off. Betsy, I imagine you probably got that yellow jacket's nest marked off in your yard so you won't step on it anymore. <laughs> and I don't blame you, sister. But the fact is, it would be a horrible thing for a Jew not knowing to walk across a grave that was not clearly marked. And Jesus is accusing the very ones that should have been steering and guiding the people of God to be careful not to offend the teachings of the scriptures and they themselves, because they were contaminated within. Jesus says, you like unmarked graves where my people walk across and have no idea. They don't even know it's a grave. Jesus says, when they come into your midst and you look good on the outside, but on the inside you are, you are filthy rags. You are contaminated. And Jesus says, you're no better than those unmarked graves. And that's what he's saying. You're like concealed tombs. You know, all they did was continually create laws, unbiblical laws, laws that God never intended, just so that they could impose upon the, upon the people a system of religion that would control them and mislead them. Compare that, contrast it rather. Contrast the legalistic weight of the Jewish leaders that they were putting it upon and heaping upon their countrymen with the inviting words of Jesus in Matthew 28, Matthew 11, 28, when Jesus said to the people, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can you imagine how spiritually tiring, emotionally draining it was for the average Jew under Judaism of that day? They were constantly having to think about, I can't do that, got to do it this way, can't do that. Oh, Pharisees just said we can't do that now. One law after another law after another law, so many laws. By the, I think by the rabbinical age, it was over 600. My recollection in Exodus, we started out with 10. 
And Jesus was infuriated by that. They were burdening down and misleading the people that God had entrusted them to lead by their own spiritual example to have fellowship with God. So Jesus is not only rebuking these leaders for their misplaced love, but Jesus was also exposing their misguided priorities. They had their priorities all out of order. Let's look at verse 45. Then one of the lawyers, not a lawyer in the sense that we would think of in terms of being uh, a promoter of, of, the, of the laws of the land today. A lawyer in that day was oftentimes referred to as a scribe. They were considered to be experts in the law. They not only knew the law, they knew the interpretation of the law. They understood the application of the law because folks, they were the ones that were engineering that elaborate religious system. And sometimes in public, they would be called rabbi. Jesus was called rabbi, which means great one. So they love that. So, so the scene shifts now. The focus is, is drifting away from the host uh, Pharisee. And now we see this lawyer who's sitting there. Maybe he was invited to lunch too. And, and, and so he's listening as Jesus is railing on the Pharisees. By the way, the lawyers were usually out of the Pharisee party. So chances are he was getting hit both ways. And so maybe to put guilt on Jesus, then one of them, the uh, one of the lawyers answered and said to him, teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. Teacher, it's bad enough that you're, you're lambasting the Pharisees, but do you understand that things that you're saying sound incriminating to those of us, the elite, the scribes and the lawyers, you're attacking the lawyers now. As if Jesus is like, oh, oh, sorry, I didn't think about that. You're right. I apologize. All you lawyers, <laughs> it, it really didn't go that way. Because Jesus turns right around in verse 46, and he lays the next woe. Now he's got the attention of the lawyers. Pharisees are listening in. But he's, he's saying, and you lawyers too. Verse 46, and he said, woe to you also, you lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Jesus is shaming them now. You see, they were guilty, as I said, of laying all these ridiculous laws that they were generating so as to control the people and to oppress the people to make, it, make the people feel like they needed these religious leaders to help them to navigate through all of these laws and they were crucial to them and all of that. But the, you know, the interesting thing, I was reading one of the commentaries and they said that, that the, the, the thing that Jesus is saying, you create all these burden, burdensome laws that you lay on the people and you don't even keep them yourself. And the fact is, you couldn't keep them. But to the scribes and the lawyers, they're no worry. Because the commentary I was reading, biblical scholars say that the, the lawyers, the scribes, had a technique of that designing in loopholes. 
They created these ridiculous requirements. They would build them secret like loopholes whereby if they, they were caught in public something, they could say, oh, but, but this does not pertain to lawyers in this way because we do this. It almost sounds like a 21st century politician, doesn't it? They'll pass laws that pertain to us, but oh, heaven forbid that they should have to go by them also. You know, what is so tragic, here are the very ones that God had entrusted to lead the people towards that narrow gate of God's righteousness and eternal life. And instead, deceptively, diabolically, deviously, they were blindly leading the people of God towards that broad way that Jesus said led to destruction and eternal death. Bad enough that they themselves would end up in the fires of hell. But to lead people into that. This is a problem that's not isolated just to first century Judaism, ladies and gentlemen. Because you know and I know too that across this land there are false prophets in the pulpits of churches. Propping themselves up as to be messengers of God. And they're doing the exact same thing. They are blindly leading people by the thousands into a Christless eternity in hell. God doesn't look too favorably upon that. They made the way to righteousness look almost impossible and hard and burdensome. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 4, by grace are you, have you been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God and not by works, lest anyone should boast. Might I add, Paul was a Pharisee in his former time. He was saying that and it cut against the grain of everything he had learned and had been drilled on as a Pharisee. Paul said, no, 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 stop. Everybody, drop all of those laws, drop that religious empty religiosity that's not the way to God salvation comes by grace through faith not through your works it's a gift from God can you imagine how liberating it was when God revealed that to Paul to be able to write to the Ephesians the load was lifted that's why we celebrate the Lord's table it's not an elaborate table. There are 200 symbols there that we've got to go through and, and recite. Not two elements. The simplicity of the power of the gospel. Jesus rebukes them for partnering in their ancestors' treachery. Look at verse 47. Here's the next woe. Kids, you all keeping up? We're up to number five. Jesus says, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers kill them. Now, Jesus is making a connection with their ancestors, Old Testament Jewish leaders. Back in the days of Isaiah, Jeremiah, when, when, when the prophets were being hounded and some were being killed. And, and, and now the contemporaries, the Jewish leaders of that era, they're building tombs. 
as if they are, you know, uh, uh, making up for the sins of the dads or ancestors, if you will. Listen to what listen to what the Lord said in, in Matthew 23, verse 30. He's addressing this issue. He says, and you say, if, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. And Jesus is thinking, liar, liar, pants on fire. I know your heart. You're just as murderous, if not more so than they were. They killed the prophets, yes. But I see it in your heart. You're devising schemes right now to kill the very Messiah, the Son of God. Don't say that you're better than your fathers. Jesus knew they were obstinate. He knew they were hard-hearted. They were spiritually dead. And he knew of their malicious actions. Look at verse 50. That the blood of all the, this is part of the woe. He says that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be acquired, may be required of this generation. Jesus is speaking about that current generation. But notice what he's doing. He's pulling it all together. He says, you're going to be, you're going to face judgment. You'll face judgment for your sins, which include the blood of all the prophets. And you look at verse 51. He says, from, from the blood of Abel. Huh. <laughs> that was at the very beginning of our quip hour. Abel was the first martyr. But then he brings it all the way through the Old Testament. And the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Jesus says, all the martyrs, all the ones who were God's faithful servants that died at the hands of ruthless people. He says, their blood will be required of this generation. Now, those are pretty stern words. You know, I was thinking about how Jesus seeing the hearts of the people and how it grieved them that day. It gave Jesus no pleasure to pronounce stern and, and ominous judgment upon people, but he knew. He knew what God's plan was. He knew that this generation of false leaders were going to face in just a few years the awful wrath of God manifested in the iron fist of the Roman army. He knew that in A.D. 70, the Roman armies would besiege the city of Jerusalem, virtually starving the people. And then they would tear down those massive walls of Jerusalem. And they would begin to disassemble the whole city, including the temple of God. Thousands of Jews would be murdered. And then thousands would be taken and sold into slavery. Jesus knew. He said, this generation, you, you will suffer the judgment of God. The Lord goes on and denounces them for preventing God's people access to the truth. Look at verse 52. Here's the sixth and final woe. He says, woe to you lawyers. You think you're really, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> you think you're so valuable and so, so wonderful to the people. But you, he says, woe to you. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. 
you did not enter in yourselves, and those who are entering in you hindered. Jesus says, God has this against you. The very, the very information, the very, very revelation that the people need from God, you are keeping from them. It's like withholding the key to the knowledge that would reveal the truthfulness of God's righteousness and the way to God. And they were locking it up, if you will. I don't know if you saw that movie, the Titanic, years ago. By the way, it sank. It was a big cruiser ship, and of course, you know the story. But there was one scene that, that really gripped me. It's when the ship was sinking, that massive, massive cruise liner or whatever, and, and, and the water started to come in. The crew had gone down. You see, the, the, the ship was arranged by people's wealth and prominence. And the first decks, of course, were the fancier ones where people had the most you know, conveniences and everything and better access to the top deck. But then as you go lower in the decks, that would be places that not so elegant, just passages to get along. And, and so the, the lower common people were down in the lower decks. Do you remember the scene where they were trying to get out from down in the lower decks and the crew had locked a gate across the escapeway? And the water's rushing up around all these lower common people. And I thought, those dirty dogs. I, I didn't say it out loud in the theater. The only way that these people have to survive, to get to the lifeboats. See, they were given time for the rich people to get on up to the deck, get in the lifeboats and sail away. And the commoners were there to fend for themselves. Finally, they broke down the gate and they made their way on up. But of course, by that time, rich folks had gotten their lifeboats and filled up and were on their way. I was just angry inside. That just gripped me. But folks, that's what Jesus is thinking. He's being these self-centered, egotistical, devious, stiff-necked, hard-hearted religious leaders who did not know God because they were spiritually blind and they were locked. They were throwing the key away. They were preventing the people and even the ones that wanted to and tried to find the true way they were discouraging. And Jesus says, woe, woe to you. You see, Jesus knew deep in his heart as he looked at all these people milling around in spiritual blindness, being misled like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus knew that as he proclaimed to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There he was, out in public, ministering to the multitudes, teaching the glorious kingdom principles of God to the people. He is the way. And what are the leaders of the Jewish people doing? They're trying to obstruct him. They're trying to discourage him. They're trying to discredit him. And if that's not good enough, they'll kill him to get him out of the way. And the Lord said to them, Woe. Oh. You see, the Lord knowing everything, He can see the future. He could see those lawyers plunging down into the eternal, unending, merciless fires of hell for eternity because God would judge them. Well, we're going to go ahead and finish up and look at verse 53 because the true colors 
come through on these Jewish leaders. Now, they have sat through six woes. And as I heard one, our seminary president down in Southeastern one time when the conservative students had invited a prominent conservative speaker to come speak at chapel, uh, I, the seminary president, who was extremely liberal, sent a message to our conservative fellowship and says, you boys, have, he says, I want you to know one thing, the fat has hit the fire now. In other words, he said, it ain't going to be easy for you guys from now on. Of course, praise God. God went ahead and worked out his whole plan and Southeastern Seminary is one of the most conservative, biblically conservative seminaries you'll find. Well, the fat hit the fire. Look at verse 53. And as Jesus said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees confessed and repented of their sins and came to be followers of the Lord. No. They began to assail him vehemently, hostilely, and to cross-examine him. Oh, they're popping questions like, what about this? What about this? Who was King's wife? See, I get to heaven. I'm going to find out. <laughs> It would probably be very simple, Mrs. Kane. Okay. <laughs> they're, 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 you know, they're lambasting him. In verse 54, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something. Folks, that's hunter's terms. That's the language of people who hunt. They lay in wait. They set traps to snare. That's what these... These spiritual adversaries of Christ were doing, they were laying in wait, looking for any way that they might trap Jesus in some of his words. And they didn't give up, I promise you, as we go through, through the remainder of Luke, if we ever get to the end, then you will see they are on his case all the way to the cross. And even then won't be content until he's breathed his last. I know you might be thinking, Ooh, I'm so glad we don't have this problem in our world today. But folks, they're out there. Just like the Bible says, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are ravenous wolves. False teachers. False prophets. Promoting an extra biblical gospel, if, if biblical at all. based on their selfish and greedy agendas. We have a responsibility. You see, we hold the light. We hold the key. God forbid that we would sit on that which is, will become the very tool to guide people to salvation. We've got to get out there and, and share the truth to counter the lies that are being promoted by false Cults and religions. I don't mean go out there and we don't need to have another Christian crusade where we go out with spears and swords and shotguns. No, we go out in the power of the spirit of God with the power of the word of God and share the word of God and appeal to people to see the truth that Jesus Christ and come to know him as Lord and Savior. I believe as ambassadors of Christ, we owe it to our Lord to do at least that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we walk through these painful passages, as we see our precious Lord, our Savior, subjected to such hostility, 
such unfairness, such devious tactics. And yet, Lord, you always maintain that spirit of grace and mercy. Lord, I believe that even as ominous as those warnings were, those woes were, that behind it, Lord, I believe because of who you are, that those woes were given with an underlying appeal to mercy. I believe that, Lord, you would have gladly responded with mercy to any of those spiritually blind leaders who would have turned their back on the emptiness of Judaism and turned to put their faith in you. I believe, Lord, they would have been met by mercy. I thank you that you extend your mercies to us every day. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to live truer to the teachings of your holy word. That Lord, you will help us to faithfully share your word with those who are walking in spiritual darkness now. And Lord, where we encounter those who are of those false cults and religions, Lord, with love and grace and patience, and yet with, with determination and intentionality, Share your word with them. And Lord, may you be, be glorified. May you receive honor. We thank you, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone sitting in this sanctuary or anybody watching virtually that does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and you have chosen them and are drawing them, and they sense that, I pray, Lord, you'll send them my way that I can help them to complete this process of coming to faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they may be saved and they may be a part of the kingdom of God. Oh, we lift it all up to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Mark, if you would come and close our service for us, please.